0: But a state church doesn't cultivate human flourishing. That's my narrow concern. Not Christian influence in the public square. Not more believers rather than less believers in the halls of power. I spend a lot of my time advocating for that and writing for why that would be a good thing. My concern is a state establishmentarian religion. Welcome to
1: Christ and Culture the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey, everyone. I'm Nathaniel Williams. In today's episode of Christ and Culture, Dr. Keithley and Dr. Quinn will talk with Nathan Finn about religious liberty and the Great Commission. It's a really great, important conversation After that, we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, like news, sports, pop culture, or business, from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about Coronation Day. King Charles III's coronation is set for May sixth, 2023, but how should Christians think about the coronation? What is the intersection between Christianity and British royalty? Well, to discuss today, we're excited to welcome back to the podcast our own Dr. Christy Thornton. Dr. Thornton holds a lot of very important titles here at Southeastern, but relevant for the Christ and Culture podcast, she's kind of our unofficial royal correspondent. So, Christy, thank you for hopping on today and uh, talking some more about the royalty.
2: Yeah, happy to do it. I'm going to add that as a line on my CV. Assistant Professor of Christian Thought and Royal Correspondent. Guaranteed to get you many, many job (laughs) offers. Um, No doubt. So let's talk
1: about that. How should we think about the upcoming coronation?
2: Of any event that happens in the royal family, this is the one that causes the most internal tension in me. Because I'm an Anglophile. Like, I find the royal family fascinating. I know a ridiculous amount of information about their kind of history. Queen Elizabeth II is one of my favorite human beings. Um, At the same time, as an American Baptist, the coronation kind of gives me the (laughs) (laughs) heebie-jeebies. Why? Why does it give you the heebie-jeebies? Yeah, so it's an incredibly spiritual happening. Like, in a world where everything feels very secular and public in a non-Christian kind of way, the coronation is the exact opposite because it's from another time. And so the whole kind of premise behind the British monarchy is the divine right of kings to rule, that God has given it and granted and ordained that this family should rule and have authority over at least the British Isles, but in certain parts of their history, the world. Uh, So this divine right to rule kind of gives birth to some of the logic behind the British Empire. And so that comes out in all sorts of ways in the coronation to the point that it's a coronation, which means the crowning, right? So they're going to put the crown. They're actually two. They'll put two different crowns on King Charles's head. But the centerpiece of the service is not the crowning. The centerpiece of the service is the anointing he will be anointed with oil like David. That's pretty intense. Right. And so, and like it is the most sacred part. So it won't be televised when Queen Elizabeth did hers. She was hidden under a tent because it's such a sacred act to anoint a king or queen to rule because it's this spiritual reality. So I started researching a little bit about this because the best place to see it is the items that they hold and carry that kind of have all sorts of meaning to them. But one of them is the ampulla. So the ampulla is this um, vial that carries the oil in the shape of a golden eagle. Why is it in the shape of a golden eagle? Well, as the story goes, Thomas Beckett saw a vision of the Virgin Mary who gave him this vial of oil to use to anoint the Kings. What? An interesting intersection
1: of Christianity and politics, public life that probably we don't think about in our in our context.
2: Right. The oil came from the Virgin Mary. And then like one of the crowns they'll put on his head that's only used for the coronation is St. Edward's crown. Okay, so a saint. That's really interesting. Like a real one. Yeah, like a real one. So they're tracing the lineage of the monarchy back to Edward, the confessor, who's venerated by the pope. Now, in a post-Reformation world, this is also fascinating because there are all sorts of truly Roman Catholic things occurring. The Virgin Mary isn't usually what you think of occurring in no, Anglicanism no. because it predates the Reformation. So they're going to put St. Edward's crown on him, drawing back to this like beginning place of the monarchy with a saint who was venerated by the Pope. He'll hold a scepter, two scepters, one with a dove on top and one with a cross on top. So one's about the power of the Holy Spirit, and the other is about the reign of Christ. And those are the scepters he holds. He'll hold an orb that has a cross on top that is the reign of Christ over the entire world that he is commissioned to participate in. At this point, the Baptist in me is like, I don't know that we should do it this way. (laughs) And by I don't know, we really shouldn't do it this way. Uh, But they really believe it. I mean, like, Queen Elizabeth II really believed that those things were real um, and that she really did have the divine right to rule. And even just, like, at the end, they're going to sing their national anthem, which is a prayer for the monarch. Uh, The national anthem is a prayer that God might save the king, send him victorious, happy and glorious, long to reign over us. God save the king. Uh, So the whole of their society is oriented around this idea that this man is selected by God to reign and rule from this family. And that's been true for a thousand years. And the American in me doesn't like it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The American and the Baptist in you, it it sounds like. both of those. How much do you think this has a bearing on the day-to-day part of their lives or even for average people in the UK? Like, do, do they know this stuff? Does it matter to them?
2: Yeah, I don't. I like to think not. Um, To the point that even when you go on the royal family's website and look at some of the details of the coronation, these the spiritualized pieces of even the coronation are like not avoided, but also like kind of mentioned in passing. Hmm. But the but the actual object, the items of the coronation themselves, like that's like literally what they're for, not the other stuff like but I don't think it plays a significant role. It did for Queen Elizabeth II. She really believed these things, um, it seemed. And, and that was actually helpful because it made her a better ruler because she saw herself as a ruler under, right, not a dictator-like right, right, authoritarian. Right. So there were some benefits to it, even if I disagree with it. I'm not sure that King Charles quite sees it the same way. I think he would like us to think he's like his mom. Um, I don't know. Time will tell whether he's as much like his mom as he says he is.
1: Well, no doubt, whatever happens, we uh, will be sure to bring back our royal correspondent, Christy Thornton, uh, if anything should happen of interest in the royal family. So thank you, Christy, for sharing with us today.
2: Happy to do it.
3: What have Baptists historically believed about religious liberty, and why does it matter? Today we have Nathan Finn, who serves as provost and dean of the university faculty at North Greenville University. His latest book is Historical Theology for the Church, which he edited along with Jason Dusing. We're always glad to have one of our own come back to be with us. Dr. Finn, thank you for joining us today.
0: It is my great pleasure to be here.
4: Dr. Finn, we've been talking about these kind of things for a long time. We're in a bit of a a unique moment, I think, post-2016 and a whole lot of other things that have happened since then. You gave a fantastic talk last night where you even admitted that you've invented a new word, establishmentarianism, and we've had to practice saying that a few times. And in in the course of sort of explaining that, you do a a look back at what Baptists have believed with respect to religious liberty and these kinds of things. But then you also turned that talk towards how we ought to think. So it's not just a a historical description, but you turn towards here's how we ought to think about these things as Baptists. Let's start with the rearview mirror. How have Baptists thought about these things historically?
0: So I appreciate the question, but before I answer it, I want to give credit to where credit is due. Uh, I am not solely responsible for inventing the word establishmentarianism. Uh, This was a a conversation with me and Jonathan Lehman where we were trying to come up with a term that captures all the different phenomena that I addressed yesterday because so many other terms only get portions of it. And uh, I don't know that it's going to catch on, but it was the best that we could come up with, and I (laughs) ran with it. So uh, shout out to, uh, to Jonathan Lehman on that. So historically, Baptists have believed in uh, the principle of regenerate church membership, and they have believed in the principle of liberty of conscience with particular emphasis on uh, what we might call ultimate matters, uh, what you believe about the big questions in life, including all of the religious or spiritual sort of questions. And so for that reason, the historic Baptist position has been uh, that established state churches in whatever form they come in are not the ideal. They're not conducive to uh, fostering a regenerate church membership. They're not conducive to uh, promoting liberty of conscience or soul freedom. There's at the very least the temptation towards coercion in ultimate matters or undermining the principle of a believer's church. And so while you certainly find individual Baptists here and there who have advocated for that, Uh, there's not a group of Baptists, there's not a Baptist confession, there's not a resolution. I'm not even aware of a treatise that's been written uh, where there's kind of a detailed Baptist defense of an establishment sort of position. That's antithetical to Baptist identity.
3: You, You mentioned coercion. You and I have been to John Bunyan's church in England, and there are examples, abundant examples, in church history where Baptists have suffered at the hands of a state church in England and in the American colonies. Is that right? And what would be some examples of that?
0: Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. And so we can even go back right before Baptists in England. There were anti-Pado-Baptists who were not capital B Baptists in the late 1500s who were put to death in England by the state church. And so uh, it, it's not just capital B Baptists. It's those who would kind of hold to a believer's church sort of model. There's been lots of persecution of that throughout history, uh, the Anabaptists as well. Uh, but in the Baptist tradition, you know, certainly Bunyan, I do think Bunyan was a Baptist. I think he was a confused Baptist, but I think Bunyan was a Baptist. He's a great example of that. Uh, there were lots of uh, his contemporaries who were also jailed at different times. But maybe the most famous example in America, uh, which happened in the mid-1600s, was Obadiah Holmes, who was beaten by the authorities in Massachusetts for refusing to be a part of the state church. Mm -hmm. And and he saw that beating as an opportunity to give public witness to the value of liberty of conscience and uh, obeying God rather than obeying men. And so it's only about half of Baptist history that we've not had to wake up every day and actively think about Are we going to be persecuted for what we believe? Mm. And I'm speaking of Baptists in North America and England. Certainly in many places in the world, Baptists do wake up every day and think about that, sometimes because they're Baptists and sometimes because they're Christians and sometimes because they're both. But uh, it, it's a luxury of the last couple hundred years that Baptists in North America are not only free to believe whatever we want to, but are actually in a position of positive influence often. And we're yeah. part of a larger evangelical Protestant movement, and we're not seen as these weird outliers who dunk adults instead of sprinkling babies.
4: Let me let – me jump on that point. So last night, at one point in the talk, you kind of stepped away from the mic to say, let me be really clear. If you haven't understood everything up to this point, let me be really clear. You can be a Christian who dunks people. So sounds like a Baptist, a Christian who dunks people at your church in terms of the way that you handle baptism and be for a state church, but you can't be a Baptist and be for a state church. So you you said a minute ago that that it's antithetical, state church is antithetical to what it means to be Baptist. Just drill down a little more for our listeners, most of whom are Baptist, but some who are not. How are those two things inconsistent?
0: So I want to be really clear that I'm speaking as a historical theologian, and so as a historical theologian, I'm looking at how our tradition has interpreted Scripture and defined what it means to be Baptist. So there are certainly people who are Baptists who believe in a state church, They are members of Baptist churches, and they believe in a state church, just like there are members of Baptist churches who believe in sprinkling babies. Mm. So I'm I'm speaking of what defines the tradition, and what has defined the tradition is a commitment to religious liberty for all people, even when it has been at great cost. We have people like Roger Williams and Thomas Helwes who wanted to be very clear. They didn't just mean religious liberty for Baptists. They meant religious liberty for Muslims. They meant religious liberty for heretics. And so again, going back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, uh, Baptists value soul freedom. They value a believer's church. Uh, Our commitment to believer's baptism in many ways is directly related to those two commitments. And so uh, the pushback has been against state church establishments in whatever form they come in because of the potential for coercion and the potential for fostering nominal Christianity, even if neither of those are the day one intention of state mm-hmm. churches. And they're probably not. But historically, that's been what happens. And Baptists look at that, and, and we give—because of the history, we give state churches the stink eye. Yeah. And we say, you know, those folks mean well, but how do we know— that because the consensus says this today, and we happen to agree with the consensus, that we're going to be a part of the consensus in a generation from now. How do we know this isn't going to turn into? Well, when we stay, say state church, we mean a list of these 12 things that you need to affirm. And Baptist, you guys are squirrely on one of these things, and so now yeah. you're not going to receive the same benefits or freedom as everybody else, because yeah. history tells
3: us that Almost inevitably, that's where state
0: church arrangements go.
3: So, and you've presented it so well how Baptists have understood uh, the relationship of church and state throughout history. So, it is a little surprising to hear Baptists talking sympathetically and some actually endorsing the notion of Christian nationalism. Are they confused about the concept? Are they using the term and with a different understanding? Are 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 there other things going on here? I think I think that you and I both would say, look, I'm a patriotic Christian and that we love our country and that Christians should be involved in the public square. But we are concerned about the term Christian nationalism, what it has meant. So how is it being used now and is it being, you know, what's going on here?
0: There's a lot to unpack there, Dr. Keithley. Well, it was a meandering question. I understand. Get- I understand. So uh, first of all, let me say this. Patriotism is a virtue, and Christians in America and Christians in other nations ought to have uh, patriotic feelings and habits and practices. That is a good thing. So I'm I'm 100% for patriotism. Uh, Christian nationalism. So before we talk about the term, let me talk a little bit about why I think this idea is uh, so appealing to so many Baptists and other people. Christians are very understandably frustrated that the Judeo-Christian ethical scaffolding, mental scaffolding that was kind of behind the structure of our nation and, and more generally the Western culture for so many years is crumbling around us. And we look at the rapidity that we've moved from 21 years ago a denomination ordaining a homosexual bishop to eight years ago homosexual marriage to now it seems perfectly acceptable and is often even celebrated in the public square for a uh, man to say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. I mean, we're talking about just the span of a couple of decades. It's my adult life. It's radically shifted. And so people are drawn to any sort of worldview or any sort of arrangement that they see as a godly strategic response to all that because that's bad. That's not biblical. Uh, That doesn't foster authentic human flourishing. And frankly, uh, many of the people who affirm those things take a persecutorial posture Towards Christians, I'm not saying they want to put us in chains and whatnot, but you look at the ostracization and the cancelization uh, cancelization. is that a word? The cancellation that happens. (laughs) It's a good word. Thank you for that. Uh, You look at those things happening, and so Christians are nervous, and they're understandably nervous. I'm nervous, but as a Baptist, I don't think the response to that nervousness is to say. Well, we've been wrong when we've argued for religious freedom for all people and so let's forget about that and let's uh, get Christians to rock the vote and let's pass Christian laws and elect Christian people and make it really, really hard for the infidels and Turks to flourish in America. I just don't think that's the response that we need to have. Now, Christian nationalism is a lot like the word fundamentalism or a lot like the word liberalism. It is a notoriously difficult term to define because half the people who might be Christian nationalists don't own the term and because many people who hate Christians use the term to define everybody that they hate. Uh, so Christian nationalism, as I understand it, does not mean a patriotic Christian. Christian nationalism does not mean a Christian who wants to see our culture more reflective of biblical values than it is now. Christian nationalism is the impulse to say that America is only authentically America if it is in some sense Christian, that we have a special mission from God to glorify Him in particular ways as a Christian nation. And and part of that is owning that we're a Christian nation and having laws that reflect the fact we are a Christian nation, and, and there's almost this sort of tribal feel to Christianity. Now, I don't think there are gobs and gobs of people who believe exactly that, but I think that impulse is out there, and I think for understandable reasons it has a seductive force among many Christians who, again, are rightly nervous about uh, where our culture is heading, and so they're looking back at history and they're saying things like, wow, Calvin didn't have to deal with this in Geneva, or wow, the Lutherans didn't have to deal with this in Munich, uh, depending upon when we're talking about Munich. Or they're looking back and they're saying, wow, you know, even our Catholic friends didn't have to worry about this, so how do we bottle up the best of that and drop that in 21st century America that's what God wants us to do with our public witness, and I just think that, that we may create 50 other problems for everyday Christians, uh, even if we do, in that way, solve a particular problem that we're legitimately facing.
3: Yeah, the assumption on every one of those scenarios that you just, you know, whether it's uh, Calvin in Geneva or John Knox in Scotland, is that you think you're going to be the one in charge. Uh, for those who were not in charge, uh, it didn't go well at all. And I'm not talking about non-Christians, I'm talking about other Christians. Oh,
0: listen, man, Uh, you know, there were lots of Baptists who for uh, a handful of years were part of the moral majority, but we need to remember that for the vast majority of our history, we've been part of a prophetic moral minority. Yeah. Hmm.
4: So, Nathan, is it fair then to think about I just want to make sure that, that our listeners are, are picking up on the nuance because I think there is some real careful slicing and dicing that you're doing here. First of all, when, when you describe the problem, cultural and American problem, you're saying you alongside with others who might associate as Christian nationalists, you're see the you agreeing on the problem. It's the solution that's different. And is it fair to say then that for the Christian nationalists, even though this is a broad term, difficult to define, a lot of criteria that we might incorporate into that, that you're, you're saying the goal is different in terms of how I, I want to approach culture as a Christian as opposed to a Christian nationalist. Is it fair to say that the goal for the Christian nationalist would be we're looking for Christian structures and imposing Christians in offices of authority so that we can stand up or retain or regain Christian structures politically as opposed to kind of the way that you said it last night was if we just do our job as on-mission Great Commission Christians, We will, and we want to vote for, and we want to see the culture laws and those kind of things move more towards properly reflecting a Judeo-Christian value. But our goal is not to impose or to to try to always seat Christians in in places of authority so that we can try to stand up political structures that that are kind of the way that we want them. Is that a fair distinction of there's there's a set of goals for the Christian nationalists that's different from how I want to see sort of my goal as a Great Commission Christian?
0: Yeah, so that is what i'm saying but i do want to make one distinction so somebody who's been helpful in how i think about this as a baptist is richard land and i go back to something i heard dr land say a number of years ago and he and i have had at least two different conversations about this in the last 12 months he was on i think his radio show at the time and he made the comment that america has never been a christian nation but America has flourished the most when it was a nation of Christians. And to me, that's the distinction between Christian nationalism Mm. and what Baptists and and many other low church evangelicals believe we should be doing with our public witness. I don't think America has ever been a Christian nation. I don't think God wants America to be a Christian nation. I see no evidence in Scripture that that's the case. Uh, However, I do think it would be a good thing that would glorify God if we were a nation filled with Christians, a critical mass of Christians who are being salt and light in any number of ways, whether it's in the the local platoons or whether it's affecting uh, the different structures in our society in ways that cultivate human flourishing. But a state church doesn't cultivate human flourishing. That's my narrow concern. Not Christian influence in the public square, not more believers rather than less believers in the halls of power. I spend a lot of my time advocating for that and writing for why that would be a good thing. My concern is a state-establishmentarian religion giving the state the power to adjudicate true and false worship and to reward those who agree with the state when it comes to worship and punish or at least ostracize those who disagree with the state when it comes to matters of
3: religion. So would it be safe to say that your, your position is that as well as intentioned as the notion of Christian nationalism is, a better approach is to be a patriotic Christian? Yes. All right. Well, in your lecture, you said religious liberty is a means to an end. Can you elaborate on that?
0: So actually, I think there would probably be some Baptists who would disagree with me on this, but I've been saying this for years, so this is my story, and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) Uh, I I don't know that I can make a case and would want to make a case that religious liberty as a discrete concept is in and of itself virtuous. What I think is it's the most virtuous arrangement possible in a fallen world because I think religious liberty... Uh, while it enables my neighbor to believe wicked things that dishonor God without fear of punishment or even coercion from the state, it also guarantees my freedom to be able to share the gospel with that person. And so to me, it is best to frame religious freedom not as an abstract concept or, or even a human right though i do think in the way we talk about human rights today it is a human right but from a biblical standpoint i think it's closely related to the great commission of global disciple making and uh you know we can certainly share the gospel and even see christianity flourish in places where there are no where there's no religious freedom but uh, my goodness whenever the state gets out of the way and just says the church can be the church and, and instead of telling the church what to do or holding the church accountable to certain ideas. We're going to create an atmosphere that's a level playing field for uh, the best ideas to win. The Holy Spirit works. He has worked historically in those settings. I see no reason to believe he would not continue to work historically in those settings. Uh, Recently, this was probably a year ago, Baptist Press and SBC Life did a series of articles on Baptist distinctives. And so there were five or six articles, and they interviewed about the same... Seven or eight of us, and they'd pick three or four of us for each of those articles. Uh, I was one of the people they interviewed for the Religious Liberty article. They talked to me. They talked to Bart Barber. They talked to Andrew Walker, a couple of other people. I don't remember who. And every one of us made the same point, that at the very least for Baptists here and now, and we think for most Baptists through, uh, since at least the time of, of Carrie and Fuller, Religious liberty has been closely tied to Great Commission faithfulness, and, and I think that's something that we need to advocate to Baptists and other Christians the, the theological reason for why we care about religious liberty, even as in the wider public square, we're just advocating for the principle because it cultivates human flourishing.
4: So last night, this this question came up, so let me play devil's advocate here. Let's, let's just imagine that your scenario of Christian patriotism, not nationalism, has played out, and the Asbury revivals have taken over, and sure enough, I mean, there's just now massive new growth in, in churches and people professing to be Christians. Doesn't it inevitably become, though, something that maybe is not yet reflecting a state church, but now everybody in government is suddenly saying, well, I'm a Christian as well, and then isn't this sort of the inevitable end of it all? Or are you still saying, no, we, we have to draw a line between some of these things? How do you respond to that?
0: Yeah, I don't think a state church is the inevitable end of revival. I think a state church would be a sign of declension, not a sign of revival. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I want to see the Asbury revival or any other revival uh, go viral, and it would be a wonderful thing if almost everybody who works in Washington, D.C. or fill-in-the-blank statehouse became a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. But the moment that they said, hey, now that we're all Christians, wouldn't it be great if we started the Church of North Carolina? And in the Church of North Carolina, I would say, whoa, 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 time out, time out, time out. That's not what we're doing. So it's a difference in
4: the ends. It's a difference in goals. That's right. It's still the point that I'm trying to make here. I think that's really really helpful for us to see because you're still – you're arguing for a difference between kind of a top-down hope versus a bottom-up hope. And ours is one that at the grassroots level – uh, we want to call for a freedom for us to do Great Commission work in our context so that we can see revival and evangelism and, and discipleship take off, but not to the end that. I think of it as we still want to be in the world, not of the world, and not trying to control the world. Let's just be in the world and not of the world while being faithful to the Great
3: Commission.
0: Yes, amen. There is no new covenant mandate to Christianize nations.
3: Yes. So the takeaway from this is is that the church is not to use the state as an instrument of discipline. However, our theme uh, for this year and our podcast is on spiritual formation. So how uh, would what we're covering— uh, be applicable to spiritual formation?
0: I love this question. So th- <laughs> we it, knew you'd love this question. <laughs> well, yeah. So it's it's so often the case that, uh, that spiritual formation in evangelical circles, and I think even sometimes in Southern Baptist circles, is treated as this uh, very interior focus that's about cultivating your personal walk with Christ so that you can uh, feel... Uh, Warmer and fuzzier tomorrow when you sing and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am am his own than you felt yesterday whenever you sang that. Uh, And I certainly think the cultivation of personal piety is a critically important component of spiritual discipline. But spiritual discipline is is also uh, something that is missional, not just something that's interior. Mm. And it's about uh, cultivating Christians who uh, are committed to being salt and light and in making a difference in their neighborhoods and in their towns and in their communities. And so for me, part of spiritual formation has to be formation for public witness and helping Christians to understand uh, how they can faithfully uh, proclaim the gospel and its implications and live out the implications of the gospel in a way that offers a compelling, winsome witness in a way that promotes, even advocates for authentic human flourishing in a way that uh, glorifies God. And so uh, I want us to avoid any sort of approach to spiritual discipline that's only about uh, spend more time in the Bible, spend more time praying, spend more time fasting, spend more time in public worship. Amen to every bit of that, even the fasting, even when it's hard. (laughs) Uh, Formation is for the sake of mission. And so as we uh, grow deeper with the Lord, uh, we also proclaim wider, making a difference in the culture around us. Yeah.
4: Amen. Dr. Finn, how can people follow your work?
0: Well, if they're very, very brave, they can go into the land of Mordor, uh, what's often called Twitter. (laughs) And, uh, and I am on Twitter, uh, and, and that's really the only social media platform that I'm relatively active on. Uh, I write, uh, Normally monthly for World Opinions, often on higher education, faith, and culture sort of questions. Uh, I write periodically uh, for Baptist Press, and then sometimes in other places. Uh, Or they can buy my books, and and every book that they purchase helps to feed starving children that my wife gave birth to. And and so we mentioned historical theology of the church at the beginning. Uh, I have a book coming out next month. edited volume with uh, two of my heroes in the faith, Danny Aiken, the president here, and David Dockery. Uh, it's a collection of essays uh, called uh, Theological Handbook, and it's just 50 chapters about theology and life that, that's a reference work for pastors and
3: students. I just got my copy. Awesome. So, Dr. Finn, good to have you with us.
0: Hey, it's great to be back here, guys. Thank you so much.
1: And now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors at Southeastern share what they're reading right now. It's only appropriate to bring back on Dr. Christy Thornton. She began the episode. Let's let her conclude the episode. Dr. Thornton, what is on your bookshelf right now?
2: Right now, I'm reading Baptism in the New Testament by George Beasley Murray. So George Beasley Murray's writing in the 20th century. He actually taught at Southern for a while before he went on to other things. And this book, Baptism in the New Testament, is probably the most in-depth argument for, from a biblical basis of believer's baptism in recent memory. We probably need more books like this at this point, but he's the best, and it's always a helpful guide for me. So if you're asking why are Baptists Baptists, why do we really believe from the Bible that we should baptize believers, George Beasley Murray gives probably the best answer to the question.
1: Thank you so much for that book recommendation, and thank you all for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, do a couple things to help us out. Number one, subscribe to the podcast so you'll get new episodes when they drop. Second, go ahead and give us a five-star rating brief review on your favorite podcast platform, and then share the episode with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.